All right, we are in the Beatitudes. How many of you uh, know what the Beatitudes are by this point, all right? How many of you have heard of the Beatitudes, all right? If you've been a part of us, you definitely should have your hand up. The Beatitudes are really the introduction to Jesus' longest recorded sermon that we have, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, and the Beatitudes are his introduction to what he wants to say. These Beatitudes are earth-shattering to the people who are listening. It's nothing that they've been used to before. In fact, it's nothing that they were expecting Jesus to say. They're following Jesus because they hope to be relieved from Rome and the oppression that they have under the Roman government. They're following Jesus because they hope that he's the Messiah they'd always heard about a conqueror, somebody that would save them, not from their sins, but from their physical challenges. And Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount, not by talking about sin or necessarily physical challenges, but he almost in a very real and powerful way goes to the heart of the matter. And that is, he talks about our attitudes when we live in this fallen world. He starts off with this, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is a weird way to start a message because you want a really engaging illustration, something entertaining to pull your crowd in. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he stands up and he says, here's the first thing I want you to know. Blessed are those whose spirits have been crushed. It's almost a downer, and you're thinking to yourself, why in the world would he start there? It's because Jesus, in all of these Beatitudes, he empathizes with our situation. He always starts by saying, I know you live in a world that constantly crushes your spirit. I know you live in a world where you feel like you're almost bankrupt in your character sometimes, and your spirit feels like it's empty and it's void. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then he follows every one of these blessings with a promise. Uh, it'll be like, for they will see the kingdom of God, or if you're their hunger and thirsty, they will be filled. There's always something that counteracts that by Jesus saying, if this is you, if this describes you, you're broken in your spirit or you mourn on a regular basis, understand that I will provide this blessing that will meet that need in a very unique way. Poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, those who mourn, broken over the sin of the world and the offense that we constantly are against God, the meek, those humbly searching for help. Then he goes into those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. God will change your heart. He will give you a, a new kingdom way of looking at things. Blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. That one thing that you, if you give it away, you may not get it back in this life, but God is constantly merciful to us daily. So if you're merciful to others, you'll understand God's mercy more in your life. We've covered all of this. But then he gets to this one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what church? See God. Because we've experienced a transforming grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, because we've been crushed in our spirit and reached out to have him give us a new spirit, because we've been forgiven, we understand what that means. We experience kingdom life in this fallen world and we try to interject kingdom living in a fallen world so that people look at us and say, that's not living normally. That's living differently. When Jesus does that, he gives us a new heart. There's a change that takes place that is a genuine change. It's not a fad, 
It's not a habit. It's not something you try out for a little while. It's a major change that takes place in our heart that takes us from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it causes us to live differently, to think differently, to desire different things, to plan different things for our lives, to raise our kids differently. It affects everything that we are and everything that we do. Pure in heart was an earth-shattering concept that you could easily get wrong. If you read this, you could say, well, pure in heart means that you are all about being pure in your living. This may actually be what the people thought he was saying, like a purity of actions. It certainly is what the religious rulers of Jesus' day said. They would say, if you want to be pure before God, then you've got to do these 618 rules. These are the Ten Commandments divvied up on all of the sanctification, purity, uh, ceremonial things that the Jewish people had to do, divided up into 618 rules that the Pharisees made up. And then they said, you do all of these 618 things, you'll be pure in heart. So the people wore this burden on their shoulders all the time. Do all of these rules, do all these rules, do all these rules. And, this, and the Pharisees said, and if you don't do them, God's not, you're not going to see God. And Jesus goes a little different direction. He said, if you're pure in heart, you will see God. Pure in heart isn't purity of actions. That's purity outside extraneous his purity is purity that takes place inside. And that's why these are called the Beatitudes and not the Beactions. The Beatitudes are what you are inside. And when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he means the source of our life has to be pure in order for our lives to be pure. In order for our lives to be who we say we are. Your source must be pure in order to see God. Your heart is the source of your life as a believer, and it has to be right. It has to be correct. It has to be correctly plugged in in order to function in a kingdom way externally. Michael and I were talking about this, and we were trying for the life of us to come up with a good illustration of what this meant. And he came up with an illustration. I was going, that exact thing happened to me. So if it happened to us, maybe it happened to you. When I first realized there was such thing as HDTV, my life changed. It was like I could experience life on my television as if I were actually there. And so we gathered up as much money as we could and waited as long as we could for stuff to go on sale until we could finally afford an HDTV. They're all HD now, right? But way back then, two years ago, <laughs> way back then, we wanted to see what an HDTV looks. So we got an HDTV and we plugged all our old cables in and all the stuff up, and you know what happened to the picture? It didn't change. So then I read the directions and the directions said, no, no, you need an HD cable. If you don't have an HD cable, you're not gonna get the HD picture. So I went out and bought some HD cable, HDMI cables, right? Plugged them all in, and then I looked at my receiver and I'm going, okay, I bought the right cables, I bought the right TV, but my receiver doesn't have any plugins for the HDMI cords. So what do I have to do now? I gotta go get a new receiver, one that has HDMI. So I sold my old uh, one and then I bought a new one and I plugged them in and I was looking and I was thinking, I still can't see the difference. I would flip through the TV, I can't see the difference. You know what I was still missing? Then I found out that I have to contact the cable company to make sure that I get an HDM, uh, HD signal to go to my HD receiver to go through the HDMI cord to get to my HD TV. 
I could have all of the right outputs, but if the, if the source didn't give me the right, the, the, the right picture, I was never gonna get to see it on my, computer, on, my, on my television. So I got the TV at a good price, but then you can imagine, it, it jacked up a little bit after that. But Beth still loves me, and so we're, we're still good, married and with HD uh, capabilities in our house right now. Without a pure source, it doesn't matter what your output is, it's going to be defective. The source has to be pure for the output, output to be pure. Pure in heart as a believer is simply this, we are who we say we are. The source of our, ener the source of our energy, the source of our actions, the source of our attitudes has to be different than what it used to be. We need a heart change. We need the source of our activity to be a pure source. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how many good things we do, it'll never change the world around us and it will never last and bear fruit. The source of our changed life as a believer is evident when we allow the Holy Spirit to validate the truth of God through the way I live my life. See, our hearts have a problem. The source of our ideas and our thoughts and our actions and our dreams are all stem from the heart. And our hearts have an initial problem. When I was growing up, my mom would always tell me one thing before we got to the dinner table. Probably the same thing that you tell your kids. Before you get to the dinner table because you don't know where those hands have been or the fingers have been, you say to your children, make sure that you wash your hands before you come to the dinner table. Now, the reason that my mom told me this and the reason why you tell your kids this is because you don't want to get them to get sick because in just a short matter of time, if they get sick, they're the little Petri dishes that live in your house, you're going to get sick. So you tell them, wash your hands so that you don't get sick, right? In Jesus' day, there was actually a law, a purity law on the books that said, if you don't wash your hands, you would be spiritually unclean. So the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were saying, no, you don't wash your hands to get rid of the germs. Nobody knew about germs back then. You wash your hands so that you can be pure before God. And we, we think about that and we think to ourselves, you know, I don't wash my hands, that makes me impure before God. That seems odd and weird. But back then, it was one of the rules. Wash your hands before you eat, or else you will be spiritually unclean. This is one of the ways that you remain spiritually pure. All of these different laws are put on the shoulders of the people by the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law, so that they could remain pure and see God someday. They said eating without washing your hands was an act that would defile your character before God. So Jesus tackles this very action, and he tackles it in a way, you might think that Jesus is kind of a, a real formal individual, but he actually says this in a very mm, uncouth way. In Matthew 15, 16, he says, are you, uh, are you also still without understanding? Do, not, uh, do you not see that whoever, whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? All right, so he's simply telling about how the, how the process works. So when you eat food, it goes down your esophagus, it goes into your stomach, it's digested, and then it's expelled, right? Right, so you think that Jesus is like, why is he talking about expelling food, right? It sounds really weird. He's telling the story for a reason. 
What he's doing is he's saying what food is, it comes into your body, it goes into your stomach and exits elsewhere. That is not what defiles a person. It has nothing to do with the, the cleanliness of your hands or even the food that you take in. He goes on to say in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what church? From the heart. And that is what defiles a person. He's changed it completely. He said, listen, your purity before God has nothing to do with washing your hands and eating food. It has everything to do with what's in your heart and what comes out of this. Because whatever comes out of this shows me what's in your heart. That's what defiles a person. Our source, our heart is revealed every day in the way that we think about issues, in the way that we treat other people, in the way that we speak. We reveal our heart on a regular basis. You, in fact, go to your workplaces and you have friends and you look at them and you say, you, you, you define them by what comes out of here. Oh, that's a gossiper. That's a liar. That's a untrustworthy person right? You have, we all have a tendency to look at somebody and we'll pigeon them in a hole based on whatever we hear comes out of here. Isn't that interesting? And whatever comes out of here originates from here. Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are all what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. He tackles a regular concept of the law in his own amazing way. And he says it has nothing to do with what goes in, it has everything to do with what comes out. And if you look at this list, it's very interesting, the list that Jesus comes up with. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts. You look at somebody and you say, that guy's a pervert. That's what comes out of evil thoughts. Murder, somebody who gets, commits murder isn't seen as a Murderer, adulterer, he's an adulterer, an adulterer, sexual immorality, theft, thief, false witness, slander, gossip, all of these things, we, we look at this list and all of these things are actions that we do but processes that begin in the heart. So our heart needs an overhaul. What comes naturally from our heart is usually, unfortunately, the wrong thing. Our hearts have been corrupted by sin that comes so naturally to all of us. In Romans 1.21 it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, speaking about all of us, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our hearts have been birthed in our lives, darkened by sin. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, this is a verse that, that'll shock you to the core if you don't know this one. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. I mean, just saying it is sick is pretty good, but desperately sick? That goes the extra mile. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus agrees, by the way, that our hearts need an overhaul because he says out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, slander, theft, false witness. The actions that inevitably define us to others originate in the heart. This is what I love about Jesus Christ. When he identifies an area of our lives that needs work, he empathizes with us first. 
And this is what he does for us. He sees our heart. And you know how he empathized with these poor people that he's, you know, this is just the, this is like his fourth point of his introduction. This is just the very beginning. But the way that he empathizes with the people is he says, I know the Jewish leaders around you, all these people that claim to be teachers of mine, teachers of God, are putting burdens on your back. And I want to just tell you, you're all in the same boat. I want to empathize with the fact, I understand you're trying to do 618 laws and it's not working. Who can do it? In fact, if you break one of those laws, that's it for you. You, you are separated from God for eternity. So, so why bother? He gets to the point where he, he emphasize, empathizes with the people listening to all of this bad information that say, follow the rules, keep up with the rituals, wash your hands. And he says, I hear what you're going through, I understand, but I think you've missed the crucial point. Isaiah 64, 6, Jesus would say, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. No matter how many good deeds you can pull off, it'll never get you to the perfection stage. I'll say that one more time, it's really good. No matter how many deeds, how many good deeds you pull off, it will never get you to the perfection stage. Why? Because any good deed still originates from a sinful source. Let me give you an example of this. My neighbor uh, had surgery and was unable to shovel. We had a snowfall that was ridiculous, large snowfall. I knew that he had had surgery, he's an older guy, and, and my, snow, my snowblower, even to top this story off a little bit, had just bit the dust. So I got out and I did my driveway and I did my sidewalk so I wouldn't be fined, you know, staying above the law, with a shovel, and I finished, I'm thinking to myself, oh, that was back-breaking work, and then I remembered my neighbor. And I remembered that he had just had surgery, and I thought to myself, Ah, I should do my neighbor's driveway. Nobody else is going to do it. I'm the only righteous one on the block. I'll do my neighbor's driveway. So I went over and I shoveled his driveway and I shoveled his walk and I thought, I'm not even going to tell him I did it. He's just going to, he's going to see, look out the window and see that it's done. And I put my shovel on my shoulder and I stood up and straightened my aching back and I thought to myself, I am a good person. Look what I did. All my neighbors have done their driveways and they have snow blowers. And they've done all their driveways, but they all know that my poor neighbor had surgery and I'm the only one that went over and did this. <laughs> I put my thumb in the pie and pulled out a plum and said, what a good thumb. You don't know that old. Yeah. And all the good that I had just done to bless my neighbor went right down the proverbial toilet. Because even in my efforts to do something nice for somebody else, I couldn't help but taint it by patting myself on my own prideful back. That's because I have a heart that's just like yours, maybe worse. I can't help, but at some points in my life, no matter how many good things I do, pull it out of a sinful heart. And even the good that I do ends up being in some way tainted in this case, by my own sinful pride. Jesus understands that. And that's why he empathizes with us and he says, I understand no matter what you do in this life, you're battling this tainted source. And here's what I'm offering you. I'm offering you a heart transplant. 
I'm offering to give you a brand new heart. And, and, and I'm offering to do it for you because you need some help externally in order to have this transplant done. You don't have to be perfect. I'll be perfect for you. But interestingly enough, even in the Sermon on the Mount, and to be to totally honest with you, Jesus seems to pile on as well because there's a verse later on in Matthew 5, verse 48, just 48 verses later, Jesus says this. Here's the deal. You must therefore be what, church? Perfect. perfect. And not just perfect like a perfect signal on a TV or perfect compared to Hitler. You don't have to be just perfect compared to the worst person in your life. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Get it? Here's the bar. You have to be up here. So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a second. That sounds like a whole lot of burdens that he's putting on to these people. And to be honest with you, I think that's what he's driving at. He's saying the Pharisees are on the right track. You have to have a perfect source in your chest, a perfect heart, in order to do anything that will please God. Here's the difference. God knows we need help. And Jesus said, all of you need help. I am here to help. I will give you a heart transplant. Give this problem to me and I will change you. I will do it all for you. And the thing I love about God is that he empathizes with us in this situation. He doesn't treat us like our sins deserve. He doesn't wipe us out the first time we disappoint him. Instead, he gives us grace and more grace and more grace. And we could commit the same sin over and over and over and think to ourselves, oh, I can't possibly live up to the expectations that God has on me. And God says, I empathize with you. Give your heart to me. Let me fix it for you. I'll give you a new heart. And together, we'll work on keeping it clean. In fact, he says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, a real tender beating heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I love that. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and I will cause you to be careful to obey all my rules. Do you get that? Jesus is saying, I will do this for you. I will put in and I will give it to you. I will cause you to do all of these things. And he says the same thing for us today. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what does the Bible say there? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about the new heart that God puts within us. It's talking about the heart transplant. This new self created in the holiness of God. And over and over in scripture, he says, you can do this. You can walk, he says it, in, in newness of life. He talks about like old wine into old wineskins. This is where Jesus talks about the wine and the wineskins. He said, no, you need, you need new wine in new wineskins. You need a whole new transplant. Later on, he would say in Ephesians 4.24, he'd say, the, the new self is created in true righteousness and holiness because it all comes from God. God will do the work to change the source of our actions and our words and our thoughts and our ideas. God will give us a new heart. And if we drop the ball, he promises if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will what? He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
the Jewish leaders demanded holiness and actions. God simply requests that we recognize we need a new heart, and he promises to give it to us. Listen, you can't make your heart pure. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many good things you do. You'll never achieve the perfection of God. It can't happen. But if God gives you a new heart, then you begin to beat with his blood and his eyes are your eyes. His words become your words. His heart becomes your heart. He does a transformation in our heart. Like you watch these things on TV, it's a renovation of an old house and then you sell it for a million dollars. It's like, ooh, that's wonderful. Don't you love those shows? You know, they come in and they tear this old thing down and they make it into something beautiful. God doesn't do that. You know what God does? He brings a wrecking ball in. <laughs> the whole thing's gone and he builds something from the ground up that wasn't there before. It's completely brand new. God will give you a new heart, a new source so that your actions can finally please God. Here's how it looks. The source changes things for us. When we love from our old heart, we love based on what we get back usually, right? I'll love you as long as you, you do something for me. It's like birds of a feather flock together. You know why that is? It's because the things that I do, I hope to get back from somebody else. I speak the same language as them. I love because I hope to get something back. But in, God, in God's uh, vernacular, when we get a new heart from him, we love not because we want to get anything back from anybody else. We love because he first loved us. See, it's a different source. We forgive. Why do we forgive? Well, usually we forgive so we can keep peace in the family, right? I'll forgive so that we don't have to fight anymore, all right? Fine, you're forgiven. Fine, let's eat, whatever it is. In God's economy, we don't forgive so that we can keep peace. We forgive because God forgave us through Jesus Christ. You see, the source completely changes. I love my wife because God loved me. She loves me because God loved her. The source is completely different. We serve, not because we get a sense of satisfaction out of it. You watch the television, they go up to somebody, why are you serving like this? Why are you giving your life to, to help these orphans? And they say, because it gives me a really good feeling. But for Christians, we don't do it to get the good feeling. That might be a part of it. And we definitely do get a good feeling serving others. But we serve others because God served us first. The source of our actions change. We do what we do because the Spirit drives our hearts to become like God's heart. It's a drive that we can't help from a heart that we didn't have before. So what's the promise? Well, the promise is that we will see God. The bottom line for this one is, if you have God's heart beating in your chest, a new source of energy, of life, of truth, then you will see God because God doesn't lose anything that belongs to him. If the Spirit is the source of your actions, if the Holy Spirit, if, if he lives within you, then you belong to God. So how do you know if you have a new heart? Well, the source has to be pure for the actions to be pure. Your outputs are now primarily about pleasing God first, not about pleasing somebody else. That is the residue but primarily your actions are because it pleases God first. Otherwise, even our good actions before God are as filthy rags because they're not about pleasing God first. Now God takes care of the actions. He makes them pure and he takes care of the results. He gives us fruit. If you ask these Jewish people who among them would definitely see God in the next life, I wonder what they would have said. 
How do you know you're going to heaven? If you asked a Jewish person in Jesus' day, I wonder, I wonder what they would have said. How do you know that you'll see God? Probably they would have said, because I'm doing all the right things. I'm following the law. All my teachers say I gotta follow the law. I gotta do all the things that God tells me to do. Love my neighbors, myself, all that stuff. So I'm gonna try and do all of that. And then I will see God. And the sad thing about it is our culture has largely not changed 2,000 years later. In fact, let me just illustrate this. Do you know who Jesus had the biggest problem with when he was on the earth? Who did he constantly condemn? It wasn't the sinners. <laughs> he was really nice to them. It wasn't the prostitutes. He had them, he had them as guests at, at dinner. It wasn't the tax collectors. Everybody hated them. He befriended all of them. Who did Jesus really have a problem with? Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Here's one verse, Matthew 23, just one of my favorite. Woe to you, Jesus' own words. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. <laughs> these weren't murderers and thieves and liars and gossipers. They, they, these were good people. They thought they were good people. People around them thought they were good people. They were following the law the best that they could. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you're all hypocrites. Why would he do that? Simply because their heart, their source, had never been changed. <laughs> they were still trying to do all of the good they could from an impure source. They needed God to give them a heart transplant, and they weren't willing to get it. In fact, Jesus even said, when you listen to these guys, when you listen to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, do what they say to do, but don't do it in the way that they say to do it. Third thing that Jesus does is he recalibrates us. And he does this all the way through scripture and we wanna do that this morning before we leave. So my question to you is, why is this so important to Jesus? It's so important because Jesus doesn't want us to lose heart. He doesn't want us to live our lives where we're constantly trying to be the kind of people we know God wants us to be. And dropping the ball and dropping the ball and laying our heads, guilty heads on our pillows at night and not sleeping because we wonder ourselves Am I really right with God? God is all about genuine relationships with us. That's what the whole, in fact, that would be the one main thing that would, that would differentiate Christianity from every other religion on the planet. God is about having an authentic, genuine relationship with us, and he wants us to have an authentic, genuine relationship with him. The great irony here is the righteous around us are not always the ones who see God. The ones who see God are those whose hearts have been changed by God. And that means that we will want to have a genuine relationship with God. If your heart has been changed by God, if you received a, a, a transplant in your heart, if you have his heart beating within your chest, you will want to have a genuine relationship with God. And when you don't have it, you will be miserable. Not because God makes you miserable, but because your heart longs for his heart. That's how life in the kingdom is meant to be. Jesus didn't say that we have to be perfect like God is perfect in order to discourage us. He said we have to be perfect like God is perfect so that he could warn us. So that we could humbly give our hearts to him. So that we could reach up and we could say, can you change this heart in me, please? Because I can't do it. I need help. 
Jesus said this in order to understand, for us to understand that trying to perfect our own actions apart from the new source he offers will always lead to discouragement and failure. We need help to be perfected by God. That's why in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is a promise to Ezekiel and this is a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ even in our day. Jesus came so that he could die on the cross because if there's only one pure heart that has ever existed on the planet, it was the heart that beat in Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man, untainted by sin. He was born with no sin. Unlike everyone in this room and everyone listening, Jesus was the only one born without sin. He was the only one that could sacrifice his blood so that perfect blood would cover our sins and we could have his blood flow through a new heart in us. His blood flows through every heart of every believer and the pure in heart will see God. So if you don't know Christ as your savior and you're trying to develop a heart that will please God someday or impress him someday when you see him, uh, it'll never work. In fact, I, I would join with Jesus and say, just give up. You, you can't do it. Don't try that route. It's an endless route of constant disappointment and failure. You'll never be impress, uh, impress God enough and you'll never impress yourself enough. Instead, number two, I would say give your life to Jesus Christ. Let him give you a new heart and learn what it means to have that heart bring about all new actions and new ways of living because you're about pleasing him first. But one final word of warning. God will finish the work that he begins in us. If God has given you a new heart, he's put a new heart in your, in your life, in your chest, he'll, begin, he'll finish the work that he's begun. One of my favorite verses in Philippians is Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That will happen. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you will see God. Guaranteed. Jesus says it. Promised in the New Testament, it will be completed. But... And here's a, here's a uh, big warning. My usability on this side of heaven, in this world, can be profoundly affected by how I protect and develop this new heart. Say that one more time. My usability this side of heaven, in this world, can be profoundly affected by how I protect and allow God to develop my heart. I can help how God wants to change my heart, I can help the process, I can allow him to do what he needs to do. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 it says, we all with unveiled face, that's the new heart, the new life in Jesus, beholding the glory of God are being transformed. I like that, it's a constant thing. It's a, you've been transformed, but you're also being transformed. It's an ongoing process into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you know what the image is that it's talking about here? You're turning into Jesus. You're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And it happens on a daily basis. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. He's doing a work to make sure your heart continues to beat and be healthy like it should be. Your new heart is constantly in the renewal process. And we are encouraged on a daily basis to give every part of our lives to Jesus so that he can continue the process of making us more like him. And all of us are on different levels. Like you might be you know, at this stage and somebody else may be at this stage and I'm at this stage. But we're all growing into the same image of Jesus Christ. We're all looking more like him on a daily basis. 
We, we forgive from our heart, Matthew 18, 35. We sing and make melody in our heart. Now with this new heart, you should look this up. It's really a wonderful uh, activity. Go and press in heart in, your, uh, in your, um, uh, your computer program that has the Bible on it, and you'll be amazed to see how many things now come out of our hearts. We sing and make melody in our heart, Ephesians 5, 19. We serve our bosses from our hearts, Ephesians 6, 5. We give our money to the Lord cheerfully from our hearts. Yeah, everything originates from our heart. It's a brand new heart. God is constantly giving us opportunities to, to produce actions that are coming from a brand new source. But I can also hinder the renewal process that God wants to do in my heart. I can get in the way. Isn't that horrible? Don't you wish you couldn't? Don't you wish that Jesus would just do the work and you could just kind of follow along? But no, we can get in the way. And we do almost on a regular basis, we get in the way. Moses is one of my greatest examples to show you. Moses was used to do amazing things for the Lord, and he did. Led the people out of Egypt, great exodus, known in Jewish history. Led them through the wilderness, brought miracles to them. They had water from the rock, they had food for all from heaven. So many miracles, their feet, their shoes never wore out. God protected them in battles, people trying to, trying to destroy them and God protected them along the way and over and over and over he shows them his miracles. He's taken them to, his, to the promised land, his land that he had promised them. And Moses had the opportunity to be the guy that takes them all the way to the promised land and he should have, but he didn't. You remember the story why he didn't? One day the people were very thirsty. They had seen miracles from God numerous times. In fact, they had seen this exact miracle once before where Moses took his staff, he hit a rock and water flowed out of the rock. Like breaking open a dam. Moses in the wilderness and the people are grumbling and complaining. They did that a lot. I know we never do that, but they did that a lot. They're grumbling and planning against God. They say, God, why'd you bring us out here to die? Moses, why, maybe you didn't listen to God correctly. Why'd you bring us out here to die? And Moses said, I, am, I have had it up to here with you people. I am tired of this. I, I have given up everything so that I could lead you out of the, the, uh, out of, uh, the wilderness, uh, out of um, Egypt into the wilderness. We should be in the promised land by now, but we're not there because you people just keep griping and complaining. And I have had it with you. And he takes his staff and he hits it against the rock because he'd done this once before. And he showed them his power over them as the rock split open and water comes out of the rock. But the problem is he didn't do it for the right reasons. He did it out of anger. He did it out of frustration. He did it out of a sense of pride, like me shoveling the driveway, my next door neighbor. All the wrong reasons. And because of that, Moses never got to the promised land. God said, I, I can't take you through. I've promised this land to the people and they've disobeyed me and now they're going to die in the wilderness and their children are gonna get to see the promised land, but now you have joined their ranks. And now Joshua is going to lead them through to the promised land. You're going to miss out. Can you imagine how Moses must have been crushed after that? To lead these griping, complaining people to stand up on their behalf and, and to speak to God on their behalf so that he wouldn't destroy them. And now all of a sudden, because of one incident, to lose his opportunity to see the promised land. Moses didn't live up to the potential that he should have because he got in the way. 
Now, Joshua got to live up to the potential. God kept his promise. All the people went to the promised land, and you know the rest of the story. Hopefully, if you don't, read the Old Testament. It's a great book. But they all went through the promised land. Uh, the uh, dis Disobedient, uh, it says in Corinthians, their bodies laid strewn through the desert, but God kept his promise. But Moses never got to see it. Now, did Moses go to heaven? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he did. In fact, God makes sure that we know that he did. If you read the book of Jude, you will find a passage in there where it says Moses' body actually went to heaven. It's, it's a great little passage of scripture. But God wants us to know, no, 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 Moses made it to heaven. That's not the point. The point is if you want to live up to your potential on this side of heaven, if you want to live up to your potential as a kingdom citizen in this fallen world, if you want to see what God can do through a life that is surrendered to him when he gives you a brand new heart in a dark, dark world that is full of a bunch of other darkened hearts, if you want to see what it means to shine as a light in the dark or be used as salt, in a tasteless world, you can see that, but you can help or hinder that process. You can help it by living constantly according to what God would want you to do. WWJD, <laughs> what would Jesus do? Your eyes become like his eyes, you see people differently, your hands become like his hands, you serve people with a different spirit. Your heart becomes like his heart. You love people, not because you get something back, but because God loves people, and by golly, if God loves them, you're gonna love them too. Even the ones that are hard to love, that's why Jesus said, you love your friends, fantastic. All the people who, whose hearts are darkened, they love their friends too. That's not the test. The test is, can you love your enemy? That's a test, because when Jesus died on the cross, his enemies stuck nails in his hands, and Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, they don't know what they do. And they killed them. I wish I could have sat down with Moses and encouraged him on that day before he struck that rock with this verse in the book of James. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you think this is ironic that this phrase, next phrase is in here? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Moses missed out on what was his full potential, but you don't have to. You can be used by God in amazing ways, <laughs> and, and it's amazing when it happens. God will do a daily heart work on you. He'll begin it by giving you a new heart, and then he'll He'll constantly work on that heart to make it look a lot like his heart. You can change it. You can pull the scalpel away from him and say, I've had it, no more work, we're good to go. Or you can allow him to do the work he needs to do. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes he asks a lot from you. Sometimes you've gotta go way humble in order to see his greatness. But if you're willing to do it and go through what God has for you to go through, you will begin to see a major part of kingdom living on this earth that nobody else would be used to seeing. And people will look at you and they'll say, man, you're different. You got a different heart about you. And then you can say, yeah, I had a transplant. Not physically, spiritually. God gave me a new heart. That's why I do what I do. It comes from a different source. And when you fall short, Remember, keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins. 
and he'll cleanse your heart every single time. Every day is a new beginning with God. His mercies are new every morning. Isn't that great? So if you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, Craig, I've damaged my heart beyond belief. No worries, no worries. God can do amazing work in your heart. He can renew it even today. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that would be the place to start. You need a new heart. And then you need his work constantly to make you look more and more like him. Let's pray. So Father, this is a hard passage to preach because it requires a lot of humility on our part to receive something like this because we kind of think we're good enough in a lot of different areas and you keep saying to us, no, you need work in every area. So we admit that. We need work in every area. Help us to love like you love. Help us to forgive like you forgive. Help us to bless people like you bless us. Help us to serve people like you have served us. Help us to take every cue of our lives from your heart because that's the heart that's been put into us when we know you as our Savior. Make us more like you on a daily basis. Blessed are the pure in heart. We know we will see you someday. If anyone's here this morning that doesn't know you, Father, I pray that the message would have been clear enough for them to understand. It all begins with them giving their lives to you, first of all. May you do a work in their lives. Give them a heart transplant and help them to see a new world open up for them that they never thought possible, where they can actually live their life to bless you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We finish every service with communion. The reason we do this is because we want to make sure that you understand the message of the gospel has been presented before we go. Uh, we try and connect it to the sermon of the morning, and this one's so easy. All these Beatitudes are easy to do, actually. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, the bottom line is, <clears throat> none of us here are pure in heart, right? I know some of you really well, and you're not pure in heart. And you know me really well, and you know I'm not pure in heart. I went to go golf with this one guy once. He's a good friend of mine now. I was just getting to know him. It was our first time out, and we went out, and uh, on the drive out there, he knew he was going to let some bad words come out of his mouth. He knew he might let the club fly across the green at some point. He knew, he knew he couldn't control himself because he was entering into the arena of golf with his pastor now, and he was really nervous. And I could tell he was real nervous. And he said these words. He said, you need to know something right up front. He said, I'm not very righteous. And I said, well, that's funny because neither am I. I'm not righteous either. The thing that makes us right, chus, right before God, is that God gives us this new heart. We drop the ball, you drop the ball, I drop the ball. We're all sinners saved by grace. And this new heart beats in our chest so that we can inevitably look more and more like Jesus Christ every single day. But we'll never arrive until we see him face to face. Someday, someday. Until then, it's always a battle.